The Charlotte Ledger Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Hey, it's Tony Macia with the Charlotte Ledger, and you're listening to the Charlotte Ledger Podcast. The Ledger produces email newsletters that deliver smart, relevant, and original news and information for Charlotte, and half of them are totally free. And you can find out more about the Charlotte Ledger by going to thecharlotteledger.com. I'm talking today with Josh Jacobson, the CEO of Next Stage, which is a Charlotte-based social impact consulting firm that works with nonprofits. And Josh and I today are going to talk about some of the trends with nonprofits. And we're going to talk a little bit about a project Next Stage is running called the Unfundable Project, which is an initiative by Next Stage to raise awareness about a concept called trust-based philanthropy. Now, the Ledger has agreed to be a media partner on that project because we believe that local nonprofits play a vital role in improving the quality of life in Charlotte. And so when they succeed, our community succeeds and becomes an even better place to live. Josh, welcome. Thanks so much, Tony. Great to be here. You founded Next Stage in 2014. What was your thinking on that? You know, a lot of times when people start up companies, you know, they draw on their own experience, they do what they know, and they they a lot of times frame it in terms of trying to solve a problem that they see. What was the problem you were trying to solve? Yeah, we have a background, obviously, in working with the nonprofit sector, and I believe it's a really important uh, component to advancing community. Too often, nonprofits struggle with the same sorts of challenges that that are present in the private sector. You know, there are institutions, there are businesses underlying them that are you know focused on creating programming that creates impact, operations to make that possible, and then resources that fuel it. Uh, and so we saw a need, uh, an opportunity uh, to come in, particularly in the post-recession era, uh, to help nonprofits you know maybe redesign how they do what they do, uh, set ambition uh, that would rally people to their cause. So a lot of times people think, well, this should just run like a business. How is it, what are the challenges in trying to get nonprofits to run like businesses? Should they run like businesses? Yeah, well, in some ways they should. Uh, we should think of the same uh, forces that underpin uh, the private sector are present in the nonprofit. You know, there's staffing challenges and you know, where does where will the financial resources come that help fuel that nonprofit? You know, they have services and sometimes products and goods that are just like the private sector. So in some ways, they're similar. They're not driven by profit, though. That's where they separate from the private sector. They center a mission of, of social benefit. And they are beholden to a number of stakeholders. You know, who, who do they serve? People who are benefiting from their programming. But also all of us, you know, a 501c3 is publicly held. So in effect, we all own the nonprofits in our communities, just like we own government. Uh, and just like government, uh, it's challenging at times to know kind of whose uh, benefits do you, you know, most serve. Uh, there's a board of directors, there's staff, there's volunteers, donors, lots of different stakeholders uh, that you know, have, a, have a stake in, in the success of that nonprofit. So that's often where the, the nonprofit is challenged because, uh, you know, we wish we had profitability as kind of the underlying goal, the way the private sector does. Uh, yeah. What are some of the, those most common challenges? Because you work with a lot of nonprofits. So you, you see a lot of different things. I'm sure they're raising a lot of different concerns. What are some of the more common ones 
Yeah. Well, obviously financial resources, probably where it starts, you know, nonprofits are so often, you know, challenged to generate either contributed or, or earned revenue that, that drives their engine. The same staffing issues that are uh, present in the private sector are also in the nonprofit, but, but also the need to collaborate more. You know, that's been a big area of focus for us at Next Stage. The idea that, you know, if the pandemic taught us anything, it's that, you know, no social uh, outcome is unrelated to the rest of it. So it's hard to be focused on affordable housing and not care about how, you know, people's health and education and, and uh, employment drives and is related to um, the presence of affordable housing in the communities. Everything's so interrelated. I think that's a challenge for a lot of nonprofits, how to collaborate. So looking at your bio, I see that before you started Next Stage, you held leadership roles at the Juilliard School and the Manhattan Theater Club, That's uh, obviously before you came to Charlotte. What yeah. was it like in those organizations and what did you learn from those? Yeah, it was kind of amazing, you know, to be in New York City in the early 2000s, you know, working in really best practice institutions, working in the arts, cultural sector, learning from just, you know, people who have accomplished, you know, great things. So I didn't attend grad school. I, I really see my time in New York as a, a form of grad school for me, getting to kind of sit at the feet of the masters. I learned a lot about nonprofit management and how to be effective, how to, how to create and implement strategy uh, that advances a mission. So brought a lot of that with me when I moved to uh, the Charlotte area in 2008. Now, I see your bio also says that in your spare time, you keep a connection to the arts by serving as a guitarist and lead vocalist of an 80s, 90s cover band with your neighbor that's, that's called called the Uncle Dad Band. Is that that's right? right? Tell me yeah. about that. What do you sing? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, you know, I was once upon a time, I used to play actually in the subways of New York City. So if you can imagine a very much younger Josh Jacobson would perform learning you know, cover songs and, and taking them down to the subway. Well, I, I hung up my guitar when I moved here, dedicated myself to growing a business. But yeah, my, my neighbor and I uh, started to play uh, music together. We, we play the kind of, if you can imagine, 80s and 90s songs that we all know by heart. Just a, Don't a, Stop a, Believing. Like, what are we, what do we got here? Yeah, <laughs> a lot. Of Tom Petty, for sure. Uh -huh. Tom Petty. And, but we'll play some Green Day and some of the, the Nirvana and early 90s grunge band music as well. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. Let's talk a little bit about the Unfundable Project. So this is a grant program that Next Stage uh, is working on, giving a $10,000 cash grant that supports a, a nonprofit. It, but unlike, I mean, there's a lot of money out there in various places for, for nonprofits. And, but this is a little bit different in that you're sort of explicitly saying we're going to fund the kind of thing that is not typically funded. What is the big idea behind the Unfundable Project? Yeah, well, we're coming up on our decade uh, anniversary, so it's hard to believe that we've been around for 10 years. And we wanted to do something special, something that would give back to a community that's you know given us so much. So we originated this idea of a, of a grant program. You know, we're a small uh, business. There's uh, just seven full-time uh, staff at Next Stage. So we also want to kind of demonstrate what's possible, that any any company, any institution can can think about how it wants to be philanthropic. But we did want to do something a little bit different. You know, given our lens on nonprofits, one of the challenges is that everyone seems to know better how they should spend their money than the organizations themselves. 
That's one of the, the ideas behind the unfundable project is that lots of times nonprofits have trouble sourcing revenue for the things that they most need because they're maybe, you know, not interesting, not tested, maybe not as sexy as some of the other, you know, programs and, and initiatives that they have that are, that are maybe more directly serving their mission. Uh, and so we wanted to support those projects and really, and call them out, call out the fact that, you know, we should be trusting nonprofits more to tell us what they need. So what sort of things uh, you've taken applications for? What are some of the things that people are applying for? Yeah, you know, professional development is one. How are they helping their staff uh, grow? You know, often it's more capital need equipment or something related to a facility. Sometimes it's, you know, one of the more uh, interesting ones was about paying off debt. You know, somebody had had a need and had covered it uh, with uh, with a loan and needs to you know pay off that that loan. You know, these are not things that foundations or other institutions that that uh, award philanthropy typically want to support uh, because they don't see the you know maybe line of sight between uh, the expense and the needs of the organization. But you know, as we get to know these organizations, where and their projects, we're learning that you know often it's these they are connected. Uh, they're just not as apparent on the surface, uh, but they do uh, create opportunities for advancing the mission of that organization. Yeah, it is sort of interesting to see, you know, you mentioning that reminds me of, you know, obviously Charlotte is creative, you know, one of their creative mornings a few months ago, and they have these things, they're micro grants. I think they're $250 hug grants and they're sort of the same thing. It's like, and, and I think, you know, to hear them talk about it, it, it's sort of like, well, it's not a lot of money, but the, the impact that it has is is really can be quite great on people if you just give them money and let them use it for professional development or, or whatever it is. And, and so some some of these micro grant programs, you know, with, you know, they're not starting new programs, they're not starting new initiatives, but they're, you know, that the, no matter the amount, they can be helpful to people. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, at the heart of it, we should be trusting the people who are dedicating their lives to these things to tell us what they need. At the end of the day, if we don't trust the organization, why are we giving it money in the first place? Yeah, let's dig into that a little bit more because, you know, we had an article in the Charlotte Ledger in um, November that we worked uh, with with you all on. And one of the concepts in there was this concept of the 15% overhead myth, which has sort of been drilled into, I think, a lot of funders, a lot of people that, that sort of says that a charity is operating efficiently if its overhead is very low. And there, I understand the reason for that. I, I see, I understand why that exists because you don't, you certainly don't want to give money to a nonprofit and all the money goes to salary and travel and planning and none of the money goes into programs. But what is the thinking on, on that 15% overhead myth and how is that harmful to nonprofits? Yeah, well, you know, the idea that there is any kind of blankets percentage of, you know, what is or what isn't a good use of funds, I think, you know, challenges the idea that, you know, lots of different nonprofits have different business models, different, different ways in which they deploy themselves, but that we would think overhead and kind of demonize it to think that the overhead that an organization has is somehow a negative and that it's much better when an organization is spending all of its capital on programming or direct service belies the fact that, you know, apply that to any of your listeners to their own businesses. How would you perform if you only could uh, spend 15 cents of every dollar on things that are important to the 
viability of your business? What if you didn't have a marketing budget? You know, what if you couldn't, you know, invest into a facility or invest into equipment and, and materials that you need that are related to the business uh, underpinnings of your organization? You know, we, we curtail nonprofits and then we wonder why they never grow or scale their impact. Uh, it's just not possible if we're holding them to such a small percentage uh, investment in themselves. And, and so that uh, is a myth because it is one. And, and it was one that about 10 years ago, a, a national speaker, Dan Pallotta, really took it uh, to task and had a TED talk that, that kind of blew up that whole notion. So you know, we've begun to see that change institutionally, but I'll tell you, I, I still run into people who uh, you know tell me that you know they just don't want their their contributions to a nonprofit going to overhead, and it's it's like a dagger in the heart every time I hear it. Right. I mean, the overhead has to be paid for somehow, right? I mean, overhead itself is sort of a word that it, it sounds like it's just unproductive money that's being set on fire. I mean, I just think of my own organization. You know, Charlotte Ledger, we have three full time employees. You know, we're nominally a, a for-profit business. We have a lot of things in common probably with nonprofits, but it, but you just think, okay, we're a pretty lean organization. We don't have an office. We have expenses. We have office expenses. We have, uh, are we, you know, uh, administrative expenses. I mean, you, you know, we have a marketing budget and yeah, you think, okay, if we couldn't market ourselves, then that sort of hurts our business because people don't find out about us. We can't generate the revenue, but we could otherwise. I mean, I'm not saying it's a huge percentage, but it's, you know, you just sort of think about how, like you said, look at your organization. And, and if, you, if you're essentially just a pass through, you know, for, for money, it, it, it makes it very hard to do anything different other than that. Right. Well, exactly. And, you know, that's how we've kind of curtailed the, the nonprofit business model, which is why it stayed so small. You know, on some level, nonprofits are just not very well positioned to do the things that their missions are attempting to to create as impact. So, you know, an organization is trying to, you know, end suffering or, you know, create a, a positive outcome in some form or fashion, yet it stays small, it, it can't grow, uh, and thus uh, its impact uh, remains small. Uh, and we believe nonprofits are uniquely positioned. You know, if you think about kind of the public sector, uh, government and taxation being the driver of revenue there, uh, and then the private sector and and you know, feed for service and and sort of profitability uh, on that side. Really, nonprofits are where all of these sectors collide. You know, a nonprofit is made up of a board, has a governing board of directors that's representative of of the people. They manage that nonprofit on behalf of of everyone in a community. Um, and then we wonder, you know, why aren't we trusting them? You know, the board that oversees that organization. Why aren't we trusting the the staff of that organization that often is taking uh, much less salary than they would get in the private sector uh, to do that work. Um, mm -hmm. Everyone's sacrificing in, in order to make the mission of the nonprofit go. And yet here we have people who are contributing, contributing to that mission who underlyingly don't trust, don't trust the organization, or at least that's what it, it seems when you designate or, or try to direct those dollars to specific purposes. Yeah, but I, but you're not saying there shouldn't be any accountability, right? That it, that you should just sign a check and walk away. I mean, I'm guessing donors at some point, as much as they want to trust, it's almost like the old, you know, 1980s uh, trust but verify. Like, I mean, how do you, what would you say to a donor that, that perceives that 
this whole trend of trust-based philanthropy is just sort of a, you know, writing a check, no questions asked, no accountability. Yeah, no, we're definitely not saying uh, that there shouldn't be accountability or that there shouldn't be an outcome for uh, the investment of dollars. So, you know, it's a marketplace and we believe that the organizations that best demonstrate, you know, a return on that investment are best positioned to generate more revenue for themselves. But we have to recognize that, you know, we're, we are often out of our element when we're trying to support social uh, impact in some form or fashion. You know, we don't do that for a living. I know enough about affordable housing to be dangerous, but I can't begin to suggest that I know more than somebody who is, you know, having dedicated their lives to it as to how best to use the dollars that I'm contributing. But I definitely want to see ROI on that investment. And we should also trust organizations to share with us how we can know that their impact is happening. So that's the other piece of trust-based philanthropy is that we also have to you know, change maybe the spreadsheet mindset that everything is boiled down to a key performance indicator and that you know, we can turn this into a spreadsheet that tells us whether an organization is successful or not. Our nonprofits often are leveraging relationships, relationships of trust and community. That's often their value proposition. And so, you know, how do we show trust? How do you measure an impact that is longitudinal that we're not going to see the, the fruit of for 20 years? It's hard. It's hard when we want this kind of exchange, you know, for the money I've given, you know, what did you use it for and how do you prove that it, it did what it was supposed to do? Yeah. Well, how do you explain impact? I mean, if, if you have a donor and they want to give money and they want to be known as a donor who is changing the world, who's having a positive effect on their community, how, what sort of, you know, how do you measure that? How do you explain that to the donor? What are some of the, the strategies of doing that? Or is it just expectation, level setting expectations a little bit? I mean, what's the answer yeah. there? Well, I think, you know, the best person to answer that would be the person who who runs that organization. So if a donor has questions about that, asking you know, the, the CEO or executive director or uh, someone on the board, how can I know that you're being successful? And let that person answer that for you. That may look like uh, outcomes. That may look like traditional outcomes of you know, pre and post assessment on someone's participation in a program, but there may be stories that you can hear. There may be more qualitative data that will give us some indication. But the key is that there's no blanket that every organization is able to do it the same way. And yet, you know, lots of institutional funders want you to apply using the same application, the same, you know, sort of grant material request. And, and so trust-based philanthropy also suggests that, you know, every organization is different, every mission is different. And we have to take a little more of a personalized approach, personalized approach to understanding how that organization can uniquely demonstrate how it's moving the needle on its mission. So how widespread is this movement, this trust-based philanthropy movement, and what are some examples of it in the Charlotte area? Yeah, we, it's about a 10 years old, so it's been around for about a decade. It came out of uh, some work of a San Francisco-based institution called the Whitman Institute. Uh, that was a grant-making entity 10 years ago that uh, coming out of the recession felt like there had to be a better way that it could do its work, listen to its grantees, and, and began to shift the grant reporting structure, became more relational, became more about 
getting boots on the ground and really engaging with each organization it supported. And as it talked about that, lots of other grant makers and philanthropies were reaching out wanting to know more about it. And so it it coalesced around something called the Trust-Based Philanthropy Project, which is launched, I think, in 2020. So they're, they've been at it for about three years. Uh, and a number of uh, area grant makers and philanthropies have uh, engaged with this. Certainly United Way here locally is among the strongest proponents of trust-based philanthropy. Uh, a lot of their work in Unite uh, Charlotte and United Neighborhoods are examples of uh, how they're uh, changing how they how they make grants to community-based organizations. You know, I think the idea of, you know, if you think about a grant maker it, with an application. So as an organization, you get the same application that, that every organization uses to apply to receive funding. You describe who you are, what your program aspires to do. You're asked to submit your budget for your organization, for your project. You know, what are the indicators and, and you know, data points that you, you want to submit? And if you're a small community-based organization, you know, neighborhood focus, pretty small in scope, you're being held to the same standard that, you know, a large agency with a $20 million budget is submitting in the same framework. And so trust-based philanthropy suggests that those organizations probably have a different way in which they should be considered, uh, that that, you know, community-based organization, when stacked up against a, a really large agency, is probably not going to look the same. And so we should be using different materials. We should be reporting differently. Uh, we should be asking that community-based organization to share data and, and uh, stories that, that you know, give us an indication of how uh, it's creating change and creating impact, that we basically have to treat you know, organizations differently and not kind of a one-size-fits-all uh, framework. Okay. Any other examples here in the Charlotte region? Any other signs of encouragement? Yeah, uh, we were excited to see the Women's Impact Fund adopt these practices. You know, that's a collective giving organization where volunteers contribute money and are a part of you know, identifying organizations and assessing organizations for funding. They adopted a, a trust-based philanthropy approach that really provided funding for more general operating support, tended to create more relational uh, approaches to engagement. But among the strongest proponents locally uh, is the uh, Lending Tree Foundation um, and April Whitlock, who is the um, foundation lead there. Uh, she's a big fan of trust-based philanthropy and of the teachings of Dan Pallotta and really designed their whole approach to uh, philanthropy to center trust-based philanthropy. Their Lend a Hand cohort, that is a, a initiative that they've originated of you know, 10 organizations that are really, they're deeply investing into lots of uh, focus on trust-based philanthropy there and really about, you know, listening to your grantees, you know, not feeling like you, you know best, but instead really working with them as partners, not, not seeing them as, as, you know, children to invest into. You know, we often nonprofits feel like children to the grownups that tell them what to do, but instead that they're actually partners and we should be respecting and engaging them like partners. Okay, so this unfundable project, you've taken the applications, you've got a list of, uh, of finalists, uh, and then you're having a celebration, I think, in uh, February 2024. What, uh, what's that going to look like? Yeah, we're, uh, we're excited. We've identified 10 organizations out of the 40 plus uh, 
applicants, uh, and we have a, a great panel uh, that is going to be considering. We certainly don't want to make that decision ourselves, so we sourced a, a community panel to evaluate the the applications. Again, these were pretty simple applications. Uh, we wanted to really demonstrate what trust-based philanthropy looks like, and we're going to be announcing the the recipient of the first uh, first um, unfundable uh, project grant recipient uh, at our ten uh, year anniversary in February. Uh, but we're hopeful that beyond you know the one organization that receives the ten thousand dollar grant, uh, that we'll be able to shine a light on all of these organizations, both. Uh, the top 10, but also all 40 plus, they all have merits. And I think there's something to learn from them all. You know, why did they feel their projects were unfundable? What is it that they perceived in the world that, you know, individual, maybe foundations and institutions or individual donors, you know, are not trusting them uh, to know best uh, how to advance their organizations. We can learn, learn from them and maybe shine a light on the projects that, that didn't receive support. Yeah, I mean, there's so many nonprofits in the Charlotte region doing so much good work on a variety of different fronts. You know, we run a list around Thanksgiving every year and we ask our readers to, you know, suggest nonprofits that they work with. And it's always, there's always some I've never heard of that, you know, sound like great organizations. And there are a lot of people working really hard, you know, to make our community a lot better. What are some other trends that you're seeing in nonprofits? What are some other things that you're, you know, that you're keeping an eye on? Yeah, I mentioned it earlier, just the the intense need for more collaboration. You know, you can pick your favorite mission or, or area of focus, health, human services. They're all really challenged right now. You know, post-pandemic outcomes are, are, are we in some ways have slid, you know, more than a decade uh, in progress that was made leading up to it. So organizations need to be working with each other more intentionally. And that's hard when your your day job running your own organization takes all of your energy. How how do you find the way to work collaboratively, not only within your sector, so you know all the educational organizations knowing each other, but you know if education, if the social drivers of educational outcomes include workforce development and food access, that a child that you know does is hungry and doesn't have a place to stay isn't going to have great educational outcomes. How do we build those those new structures that allow people to collaborate more effectively. It's it's really been a big area of focus for us at Next Stage. Well, great. Well, how do people find out more about Next Stage and about the Unfundable Project? Yeah, you can come to our website, nextstage-consulting.com, uh, and you can check out uh, our Unfundable uh, Project, which is uh, up on the menu there. Uh, and yeah, we're going to be uh, sharing more information about the the, the organizations that applied, the top 10 uh, finalists, as well as the the selected organization in the months ahead. Great, Josh. Well, thanks. That's a wrap. To our listeners, thank you for listening. The Charlotte Ledger Podcast is produced by Lindsay Banks. Queen City Podcast Network.com.